she came all the way from um, Philadelphia, so please welcome Carmen. Thank you so much, Skylight, for having me. Uh, and thank you for coming. It's so good to see all of you. Um, oh, there's so many. There's seats up here. If anyone feel like standing everywhere, no? Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> um, so, yes, and it's amazing that um, the Nobel Prize News Today because Never Let Me Go was like a very formative novel for me that I read when I was a teen, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from Her Body and Other Parties for about 20 minutes, and then I guess we're going to do a Q&A. Um, so. Can you hear me if I'm like this? Like from the side? Okay, cool. <clears throat> Husband's Stitch. If you read this story out loud, please use the following voices. Me, as a child, high-pitched, forgettable, as a woman, the same. The boy who will grow into a man and be my spouse, robust with serendipity. My father, kind, booming, like your father, or the man you wish was your father. My son, as a small child, Gentle, sounding with the faintest of lisps, as a man like my husband. All other women, interchangeable with my own. In the beginning, I know I want him before he does. This isn't how things are done, but this is how I'm going to do them. I'm at a neighbor's party with my parents, and I'm 17. I drink half a glass of white wine in the kitchen with a neighbor's teenage daughter. My father doesn't notice. Everything is soft, like a fresh oil painting. The boy is not facing me. I see the muscles of his neck and upper back, how he fairly strains out of his button-down shirts like a day laborer dressed up for a dance, and I run slick. And it isn't that I don't have choices. I am beautiful. I have a pretty mouth. I have breasts that heave out of my dresses in a way that seems innocent and perverse all at the same time. I'm a good girl from a good family. But he is a little craggy, and that way men sometimes are, and I want... He seems like he could want the same thing. I once heard a story about a girl who requested something so vile from her paramour that he told her family and they had her hauled off to a sanitarium. I don't know what deviant pleasure she asked for, though I desperately wish I did. What magical thing could you want so badly that they took you away from the known world for wanting it? The boy notices me. He seems sweet, flustered. He says, hello. He asks my name. I have always wanted to choose my moment. This is the moment I choose. On the deck, I kiss him. He kisses me back, gently at first, but then harder, and even pushes open my mouth a little with his tongue, which surprises me and, I think, perhaps him as well. I've imagined a lot of things in the dark, in my bed, beneath the weight of that old quilt, but never this, and I moan. When he pulls away, he seems startled. His eyes dart around for a moment before settling on my throat. What's that? he asks. Oh, this? I touch the ribbon at the back of my neck. It's just my ribbon. I run my fingers halfway around its green and glossy length and bring them to rest on the tight bow that sits in the front. He reaches out his hand, and I seize it and press it away. You shouldn't touch it, I say. You can't touch it. Before we go inside, he asks if he can see me again. I tell him I would like that. That night before I sleep, I imagine him again, 
his tongue pushing, pushing open my mouth, and my fingers slide over myself, and I imagine him there, all muscle and desire to please, and I know that we are going to marry. We do. I mean, we will. But first he takes me in his car, in the dark, to a lake with a marshy edge that is hard to get close to. He kisses, he kisses me and clasps his hand around my breast, my nipple nodding beneath his fingers. I am not truly sure what he is going to do before he does it. He is hard and hot and dry and smells like bread, and when he breaks me, I scream and cling to him like I am lost at sea. His body locks onto mine, and he is pushing, pushing, and before the end, he pulls himself out and finishes with my blood slicking him down. I am fascinated and aroused by the rhythm, the concrete sense of his need, the clarity of his release. Afterward, he slumps in the seat, and I can hear the sounds of the pond, loons and crickets, and something that sounds like a banjo being plucked. The wind picks up off the water and cools my body down. I don't know what to do now. I can feel my heart beating between my legs. It hurts, but I imagine it could feel good. I run my hand over myself and feel strains of pleasure from somewhere far off. His breathing becomes quieter, and I realize that he is watching me. My skin is glowing beneath the moonlight coming through the window. When I see him looking, I know I can seize that pleasure like my fingertips tickling the very end of a balloon string that is almost drifted out of reach. I pull and moan and ride out the crest of sensation, slowly and evenly, biting my tongue all the while. I need more, he says. He does not rise to do anything. He looks out the window, and so do I. Anything could move out there in the darkness, I think. A hook-handed man. A ghostly hitchhiker forever repeating the same journey. An old woman summoned from her repose in her mirror by the chance of children. Everyone knows those stories. That is, everyone tells them, even if they don't know them. But no one ever believes them. His eyes drift over the water and then return to me. Tell me about your ribbon, he says. There's nothing to tell. That's my ribbon. May I touch it? No. I want to touch it, he says. His fingers twitch a little, and I close my legs and sit up straighter. No. Something in the lake muscles and rises out of the water and then lands with a splash. He turns at the sound. A fish, he says. Sometime, I tell him, I will tell you the stories about this lake and her creatures. He smiles at me and rubs his jaw. A little of my blood smears across his skin, but he doesn't notice, and I don't say anything. I would like that very much, he says. Take me home, I tell him, and like a gentleman, he does. That night, I wash myself. The silky suds between my legs are the color and scent of rust, but I am newer than I have ever been. My parents are very fond of him. He's a nice boy, they say. He will be a good man. They ask him about his occupation, his hobbies, his family. He shakes my father's hand firmly and tells my mother flatteries that make her squeal and blush like a girl. He comes around twice a week, sometimes thrice. My mother invites him in for supper, and while we eat, I dig my nails into the meat of his leg. After the ice cream puddles in the bowl, I tell my parents that I'm going to walk with him down the lane. We strike off through the night, holding hands sweetly until we are, out, we are out of sight of the house. I pull him through the trees. When we find a patch of clear ground, I shimmy off my pantyhose and on my hands and knees offer myself up to him. I have heard all the stories about girls like me, and I am unafraid to make more of them. I hear the metallic buckle of his pants and the shush as they fall to the ground, and I feel his hardness against me. I beg him, no teasing, and he obliges. I moan and push back, and we rut in that clearing, groans of my pleasure and groans of his good fortune mingling and dissipating into the night. We are learning, he and I. 
There are two rules. He cannot finish inside me, and he cannot touch my green ribbon. He spends into the dirt, pat, pat, patting like the beginning of rain. I go to touch myself, but my fingers, which have been curling in the dirt beneath me, are filthy. I pull up my underwear and stockings. He makes a sound and points, and I realize that beneath the nylon, my knees are also caked in dirt. I pull my stockings down, brush, and pull them up again. I smooth my skirt and repin my hair. A single lock has escaped his slicked back curls in, the, in his exertion, and I tuck it up with the others. We walk down the street to the stream, and I run my hands in the current until they are clean again. We stroll back to the house, arms linked chastely. Inside, my mother has made coffee, and we all sit around while my father asks him about business. If you read this story out loud, the sounds of the clearing can best be reproduced by taking a deep breath and holding it for a long moment. Then release the air all at once, permitting your chest to collapse like a block tower knocked to the ground. Do this again and again, shortening the time between the held breath and the release. I have always been a teller of stories. When I was a young girl, my mother carried me out of the grocery store as I screamed about toes in the produce aisle. Concerned women turned and watched as I kicked the air and pounded my mother's slender back. Potatoes, she corrected when we got back to the house, not toes. She told me to sit in my chair, a child-sized thing built just for me, until my father returned. But no, I had seen those toes, pale and bloody stumps, mixed in amongst the russet tubers. One of them, the one that I had poked with the tip of my index finger, was cold as ice and yielded beneath my touch the way a blister did. When I repeated this detail to my mother, something behind the liquid of her eyes shifted quick as a startled cat. You stay right there, she said. My father returned from work that evening and listened to my story, each detail. You've met Mr. Barnes, have you not? He asked me, referring to the elderly man who ran this particular market. I had met him once, and I said so. He had hair white as a sky before snow, and a wife who drew the signs for the store windows. Why would Mr. Barnes sell toad, my father asked. Where would he get them? Being young and having no understanding of graveyards or mortuaries, I could not answer. And even if he got them somewhere, my father continued, what would he have to gain by selling them amongst the potatoes? They had been there. I had seen them with my own eyes. But beneath the sunbeam of my father's logic, I felt my doubt unfurl. Most importantly, my father said, arriving triumphantly at his final piece of evidence, why did no one notice the toes except for you? As a grown woman, I would have said to my father that there are true things in this world observed by only a single set of eyes. As a girl, I consented to, I consented to his account of the story and laughed when he scooped me from the chair to kiss me and send me on my way. It is not normal that a girl teaches her boy, but I am only showing him what I want, what plays on the insides of my eyelids as I fall asleep. He comes to know the flicker of my expression as a desire passes through me, and I hold nothing back from him. When he tells me that he wants my mouth, the length of my throat, I teach myself not to gag and take him all into me. When he asks my worst secret, I tell him about the teacher who hid me in the closet until the others were gone, made me hold him there, and how afterward I went home and scrubbed my hands with a steel wool pad until they bled, even though the memory strikes such a chord of anger and shame that after I share this, I have nightmares for a month. When he asks me to marry him, days shy of my 18th birthday, I say, yes, yes, please. And then on that park bench, I sit on his lap and fan my skirt around us so a passerby would not realize what was happening beneath it. I feel like I know so many parts of you, he says to me, knuckle deep, and now I will know all of them. There's a story they tell about a girl dared by her peers to venture to a local graveyard after dark. 
This was her folly. When they told her that standing on someone's grave at night would cause the inhabitant to reach up and pull her under, she scoffed. Scoffing is the first mistake a woman can make. Life is too short to be afraid of nothing, she said, and I will show you. Pride is the second mistake. She could do it, she insisted, because no such fate would befall her. So they gave her a knife to stick into the frosty earth as a way of proving her presence and her theory. She went to that graveyard. Some storytellers say that she picked the grave at random. I believe she selected a very old one, her choice tinged by self-doubt and the latent belief that if she were wrong, the intact muscle and flesh of a newly dead corpse would be more dangerous than one centuries gone. She knelt on the grave and plunged the blade deep. As she stood to run, for there was no one to see her fear, she found she couldn't escape. Something was clutching at her clothes. She cried out and fell to the ground. When morning came, her friends arrived at the cemetery. They found her dead on the grave, the blade pinning the sturdy wool of her skirt to the earth. Dead of fright or exposure, would it matter when the parents arrived? She was not wrong, but it didn't matter anymore. Afterward, everyone believed that she had wished to die, even though she had died proving that she wanted to live. As it turns out, being right was the third and worst mistake. My parents are pleased about the marriage. My mother said that even though girls nowadays are starting to marry late, she married my father when she was 19 and was glad she did. When I select my wedding gown, I'm reminded of the story of a young woman who wished to go to a dance with her lover but could not afford a dress. She purchased a lovely white frock from a second-hand shop and then later fell ill and passed from this earth. A doctor who examined her in her final days discovered that she had died from exposure to... Sorry. <laughs> a doctor who examined her in her final days discovered that she had died from exposure to embalming fluid. It turned out that an unscrupulous undertaker's assistant had stolen the dress from the corpse of a bride. The moral of that story, I think, is that being poor will kill you. I spend more time or more on my dress than I intend, but it is very beautiful and better than being dead. When I fold it into my hope chest, I think about the bride who played hide-and-go-seek on her wedding day and hid in the attic in an old trunk that snapped shut around her and did not open. She was trapped there until she died. People thought she'd run away until years later, when a maid found her skeleton in a white dress folded inside that dark space. Brides never farewell in stories. <laughs> stories can sense happiness and snuff it out like a candle. We marry in April on an unseasonably cold afternoon. He sees me before the wedding, in my dress, and insists on kissing me deeply and reaching inside my bodice. He becomes hard, and I tell him that I want him to use my body as he sees fit. I rescind my first rule, given the occasion. He pushes me against the wall and puts his hand on the tile near my throat to steady himself. His thumb brushes my ribbon. He does not move his hand, and as he works himself inside me, he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. I do not know if I'm the first woman to walk up the aisle of St. George's with semen leaking down her leg, but I'd like to imagine that I am. <laughs> For our honeymoon, we go on a tour of Europe. We are not rich, but we make it work. Europe is a continent of stories, and in between consummations, I learn them. We go from bustling ancient metropolises to sleepy villages to alpine retreats and back again, sipping spirits and pulling roasted meat from the bones with our teeth, eating schwitzel and olives and ravioli and a creamy grain I do not recognize but come to crave each morning. We cannot afford a sleeper car on the train, but my husband bribes an attendant to permit us one hour in an empty room, and in that way we couple over the Rhine, my husband pinning me to the rickety frame and howling with something more primordial than the mountains we cross. I recognize this is not the entire world, 
but it is the first part of the world that I am seeing. I feel electrified by possibility. If you are reading the story out loud, make the sound of the bed under the tension of train travel and lovemaking by straining a metal folding chair against its hinges. When you are exhausted with that, sing the half-remembered lyrics of old songs to the person closest to you, thinking of lullabies for children. My cycle stops soon after we return from our trip. I tell my husband one night, and after we are spent and sprawled across our bed, he glows with real delight. A child, he says. He lies back with his hands beneath his head. A child. He is quiet for so long that I think he's fallen asleep. When I look over, his eyes are open and fixed on the ceiling. He rolls on his side and gazes at me. Will the child have a ribbon? I feel my jaw tighten, and my hand fondles my bow involuntarily. My mind skips between many answers, and I settle on the one that brings me the least amount of anger. There's no saying now, I tell him finally. He startles me then by running his hand along my throat. I put up my hands to stop him, but he uses his strength, grabbing my wrist with one hand as he touches the ribbon with the other. He presses the silky length with his thumb. He touches the bow delicately, as if he's massaging my sex. Please, I say, please don't. He does not seem to hear. Please, I say again, my voice louder but cracking in the middle. He could have done it then, untie the bow if he'd chosen to. But he releases me and rolls onto his back as if nothing has happened. My wrists ache and I rub them. I need a glass of water, I say. I get up and go to the bathroom. I run the tap and then frantically check my ribbon, tears caught in my lashes. The bow is still tight. There's a story I love about a pioneer husband and, her and wife killed by wolves. Neighbors found their bodies torn apart and strewn around their tiny cabin, but never located their infant daughter, alive or dead. People claim they saw the girl running with a wolf pack, loping over the terrain as wild and feral as any of her companions. News of her would ripple through local settlements upon each sighting. She menaced a hunter in a winter forest, though perhaps he was less menaced than startled at the tiny naked girl baring her teeth and howling so rawly it quaked the skin on his bones. A young woman then, on the cusp of marriage age, trying to take down a horse. People even saw her ripping open a chicken in an explosion of feathers. Many years later, she was said to be seen resting in the rushes along the riverbank, suckling two wolf cubs. I like to imagine that they came from her body, the lineage of wolves tainted human just the once. They certainly bloodied her breasts, but she did not mind because they were hers and only hers. I believe that when their muzzles and teeth pressed against her, she felt a kind of sanctuary, peace she would have found nowhere else. She must have been better among them than she would have been otherwise. Of that I am certain. Months pass and my stomach swells. Inside of me our child is swimming fiercely, kicking and pushing and clawing. In public I gasp and stagger to the side, clutching my belly and hissing through my teeth to little one, as I call it, to stop. Once I stumble and go on a walk in the park, the same park where my husband had proposed to me the year before, and go to my knees, breathing heavily and near weeping. A woman, pa a woman passing by helps me to sit up and gives me some water, telling me the first pregnancy is always the worst, but they get better with time. It is the worst, but for so many reasons besides my altered form. I sing to my child and think about the old wives' tales of carrying the baby high or low. Do I carry a boy inside of me, the image of his father? Or a girl, a daughter who would soften the sons that followed. I have no siblings, but I know that eldest girls sweeten their brothers and are protected by them from the dangers of the world, an arrangement that buoys my heart. My body changes in ways I do not expect. My breasts are large and hot, 
my stomach lined with pale marks, the inverse of a tiger's. I feel monstrous, but my husband seems renewed, renewed with desire, as if my novel shape has refreshed our list of perversities. As my, and my body responds, in line at the supermarket, receiving communion in church, I am marked by a new and ferocious want, leaving me slippery and swollen at the slightest provocation. When he comes home each day, my husband has made a list in his mind of the things he desires from me, but I am willing to provide them and more, having been on the edge of coming since the morning's purchase of bread and carrots. I'm the luckiest man alive, he says, running his hand along my stomach. In the morning, he kisses me and sometimes takes me before his coffee and toast. He goes to work with a spring in his step. He comes home with one promotion and then another. More money for my family, he says. More money for our happiness. Of all the stories I know about mothers, this one is the most real. A young American girl is visiting Paris with her mother when the woman begins to feel ill. They decide to check into a hotel for a few days so the mother can rest, and the daughter calls for a doctor to assess her. After a brief examination, the doctor tells the daughter that all her mother needs is some medicine. He takes the daughter to a taxi, gives the driver instructions in French, and explains to the girl the driver will take her to his residence, where his wife will give her the appropriate remedy. They drive and drive for a very long time, and when the girl arrives, she is frustrated with the unbearable slowness of the doctor's wife, who meticulously assembles the pills from powder. When she gets back into the taxi, the driver meanders down the streets, sometimes doubling back over the same avenue. Frustrated, the girl gets out of the taxi to return to the hotel on foot. When she finally arrives, the hotel clerk tells her that he has never seen her before. When she runs up to a room where her mother had been resting, she finds the walls a different color, the furnishings different than her memory, and her mother nowhere in sight. There are many endings to this story. In one of them, the girl is gloriously persistent and certain, renting a room nearby and staking out the hotel, eventually seducing a young man who works in the laundry and discovering the truth, that her mother had died of a highly contagious and fatal disease, departing this plane shortly after the daughter was sent from the hotel by the doctor. To avoid a citywide panic, the staff removed and buried the body, repainted and refurnished the room, and bribed all involved to deny they'd ever met the pair. In another version of the story, the girl wanders the streets of Paris for years, believing she is mad, that she invented her mother and her life with her mother in her own diseased mind. The daughter stumbles from hotel to hotel, confused and grieving, though for what she cannot say. Each time she is ejected from another posh lobby, she weeps for something lost. Her mother is dead and she does not know it. She won't know it until she herself is also dead, assuming you believe in paradise. I don't need to tell you the moral of this story. I think you already know what it is. I love questions. Ask me anything. Well, can you talk about the inspiration for your stories? Can you talk about... Sure, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, so um, a lot of the stories in this book came from um, stories that I'm obsessed with, like the girl with the green ribbon around her neck, and actually, the, I don't know if you can see, the lapel pen I have is actually the illustration from that story from the Alvin Schwartz version of it, um, which was a story that I was really obsessed with as a kid and really, like, fucked me up. Uh, and, and I was a Girl Scout, um, and I used to tell... We used to go camping, and... I was like weird, and the other girls didn't really like me very much because um, I was weird. But 
and this is probably why, is that I would tell, we would sort of tell stories at the campfire, and I had read the Alvin Schwartz Scary Stories book, which had instructions that usually I would like, you know, grab the person next to be like, you have the liver, you know, like grab them and yell it really loudly. And then <laughs> made some girl cry hysterically. <laughs> um, so I was really into the, those types of stories, and I was listening to like creepy books that I read, you know, and I would, my mother, I mean, I would read like Christopher Pike and Carl Stein and uh, Louis Duncan, and I'd watch Are You Afraid of the Dark. My mother had to like put a, like, ban them because I couldn't sleep, but I kept consuming them. I couldn't stop myself. Um, yeah, and also, like, I have a story in here about Law and Order SVU because I'm obsessed with Law and Order SVU. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I feel like a lot of these stories are just sort of things that, like, the sort of the, the beating hearts of the stories are like ideas and thoughts that I have that I turn over a lot in my mind. And then a lot of the sort of framework or the narratives that I draw from are narratives that have been important to me in some way in my lifetime. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Jack Stanley, wait, hold on, before you ask your question, this gentleman here is my brother's childhood friend, and I knew him when he was like very little, when you were since you were six, and now you're grown, you're a grown ass man. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite horror movie? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I have a lot. Um, I'd say recently my favorite was Get Out, um, obviously, because it's like the best horror movie that came out last year. Wait, did it come out this year? This year. This year. Yeah, best movie, horror movie this year, I think. Um, I also really enjoyed um, A Girl Walks Home Alone, at N- Home Alone at Night. I really liked It Follows. I really liked Babadook. I mean, I could just sort of name horror movies for like a really long time. Uh, but yeah, I'd say Get Out was my, my favorite recent horror film. What was she like when you were six years old? Oh, I mean, like the same. Oh, I was real. I was real bossy. Oh, I bet he could tell you stories. I was my little brother. I had feelings about having a little brother. So. Yeah. My little brother's little friends. I had lots of thoughts about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was that? You didn't soften. Uh, actually, I think I, I think I did. That's actually. Actually, yeah, I think you did soften. Yeah, he's a, he's a sweet. My little brother's a sweet. Sweet angel. He is. <laughs> um, I'm just kind of curious um, what the role of like erotics plays in the way that you conceptualize horror. Is it like a feminist reclaiming of the horror genre? Um, this, that's my guess, but just if you could speak to how erotics are working in your stories. Yeah, so I am really interested. So the thing about horror that I think is really interesting as a genre is that it's both incredibly regressive and incredibly subversive, right? So, I mean, a lot of horror, I mean, obviously there's a lot, you know, a lot of films sort of made in the last, like, decade or so that, like, are trying to um, sort of turn the tables on various horror tropes, so Get Out is a good example. Um, uh, the Last uh, the last Girl, right? That's what that was called, The Last, right? Wait, say again? Final Girl? Yeah, The Final Girl, yes. But that's another example, right, where it's sort of that, taking that, this trope from horror film and kind of, like, turning it on its head. Um, so I'm really interested in um, that idea and in terms of erotic writing so I actually do write or have written erotica or what I consider erotica um, as I publish under a pseudonym um, but the thing about those stories is that when I wrote those stories the plot was serving this, the sexual content so like I was creating a plot to maximize the boning like that was literally how I was you know so like I, I really was like okay I need to like figure out like a scenario and a set of characters where like I can make this be like there's like a lot of sex like happening all at once right um with some little bits in between most of that um and so so the the, the sex so the plot was sort of secondary and it was sort of a way of me getting at that material whereas with these stories 
I'm sort of inverting it, which is like the, the sex, while plentiful throughout, uh, is, is serving the plot and is serving some like sort of my thematic uh, my thematic goals for the story. Um, yeah, does that answer? Does that answer your question? Yes. Uh, my favorite story is the first story. The story that sticks in mind is the story about Yes. Yeah. So, in case you guys didn't hear the question, um, she's asking about uh, a horror story, which is another story I published in Granta two years ago. I can't remember. I think yeah, two years ago. Um, and so it's this very short, it's only like a thousand, it's a little over a thousand words, and it's a story about a lesbian couple who moves into a house um, and is just being plagued by some kind of inexplicable haunting um, that just makes no logical sense. Um, and actually the reason I wrote it was because, A, I was really interested in writing, I wanted to write a story where it was about a relationship falling apart, but it was a, a lesbian couple, that was the first thing I wanted to do. I also was really interested in... I really, my favorite part of like horror films is like the slow acclimation of details when things are not quite right. So it's like, oh, like I didn't leave this book here, or that door was not closed before, or you know, like weirdly, and eventually it like it amps up and amps up and amps up. So the story has, has that same structure but incredibly compressed. So there's those like weird incongruous details that clearly lead to something being, um, the house being haunted in some way, and they find out there's been, like, 18,000 people, like, killed in the house. Like, they're, they're, they're like, oh, there's, like, a burial ground beneath it, and also that woman was hung here, and also, like, this girl was serial killer, was a serial killer, like, killed a girl here, and, like, so it's just, like, this sort of, um, acclimation of weird details that don't really add too much, but it's really about a relationship kind of coming apart. Um, yeah, I mean, it actually started off as an exercise. Like, I just wanted to play with that idea of, like, the sort of mounting, the mounting evidence of a haunting, um, and then I realized while I was writing, I was like, oh, this is actually like really sad. It's about like a couple who's like not getting along with each other. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that was really, that was kind of fun that I wrote it. <laughs> yes. Sure, yeah, so, um, so when I, this book went on submission with my agent, and so I had a first round of submissions that were to all larger houses, and no one took it. Um, a lot of people said things like, we've already reached our collection quota for the year, which is the thing that happened with short story collections, because you get like one, maybe. Um, or they were like, we don't know how to sell this, or like, do you have a novel you could like speed sell with it? You know, I mean, anyone who writes short stories like knows this, knows this conversation. Um, so I was feeling kind of bummed, and I was like, ugh, you know, um, and I actually, at that point, the first submission, Eight Bites, which, for those of you who read the book, the story Eight Bites was not in there, in my original submission, because um, I hadn't written it yet, or I was still in the process of writing it. And then finally I said, okay, I'm going to, like, reconfigure the collection a little bit, I'm going to add a story in that I just finished that I feel like really works with this collection, and we're going to go another round of submissions, and Grey Wolf was in that collection, and Grey Wolf was the only people who made an offer on the book, um, which is, I mean... Grail was definitely amazing. Um, the, the, the thing that's really funny about like pub- going on submission for a book is everyone tells you like you only need one, like you only need one person to want to publish it. Like it doesn't, you know. Um, but it's still this very like agonizing like eight month. Like I have spreadsheets and I'm like crying and like trying, you know, I'm just like really stressed out. <laughs> it's stressful. It's stressful. Uh, like it's never gonna get published. Like no one ever publish it. Um, but and then Grail, like I I got uh, an email from my agent saying like Grail wanted uh, the, the editor Ethan Nasowski at Grail wanted to talk to me. 
we had this amazing film competition where he just seemed totally in sync with my whole vision for the project, and then they bought it. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I guess looking back on it now, I'm really grateful because I feel like Grey Wolf, they were willing to take a risk on this book, which is like, formally strange, it's a short story collection, it's super gay, like, there's just like a lot of things kind of working against it in terms of like, popular appeal, and so, um, but Grey Wolf didn't even, they did not care, they were just like, we love this book, we're super excited, but they never, so, so it's been like a really incredible experience, and I'm like super happy with them. Um, and I mean, now I feel like they're really establishing, establishing themselves as a publisher who's like taking risks on like a lot of projects that maybe wouldn't or otherwise get published, and is like, and of course, getting a lot of more critical um, excitement. So I think, yeah, so I'm really glad I went with them, and I love my editor, and I mean, yeah, so it wasn't necessarily like I, I want to submit directly to them, but it ended up being that way, and I'm really happy about it. Yes. Oh, question. hello. Yes. Hi, Carmen. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about how your relationship to SVU has like evolved over the years. <laughs> how much time do we have? Um, so, sure. So the real fast and dirty version. So when I was, um, I used to live in San Francisco years ago, and I moved into a cottage by myself and my boyfriend broke up with me, and I was very sad and alone, and I got swine flu, because, you know, why why, why just all those other bad things? Why not also add swine flu to the, to the pile? So um, I wasn't feeling great. I called out of work. I was like, I don't feel so good. I'm not, you know, and then I, like, and this was right after Netflix introduced that feature where instead of, like, having to click through to the next episode of a show, it would just automatically play the next episode. And before they had the thing where I was like, are you still watching? Like, are you, are you okay? So I um, put on, and I never watched, I think they just put one over SVU on Netflix, and I had, you know, like everybody in the, in the whole universe, I had only ever seen it, like, the second half of the episode that you catch on TV randomly, right? And then you're like, oh, watch the next one, and like four hours go by, and you're still watching one over SVU. So that was how I always watched it before, but I just like, I'll just start from the beginning. Like, I'll just start watching them sequentially. And so I started watching sequentially, and then I got a fever so high that I hallucinated for three days. Probably should have been in the hospital, but was too sick to go to the hospital, because I didn't know to do that. Um, and then the whole time, it was just playing in the background. <laughs> 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 and so I like to think, I like to think that that sort of like lynching hellscape into which I descended uh, over those three days, it was maybe the spiritual sort of mother of the story. Um, and then sort of years later, I mean, I continued to watch the show, I just had a lot of thoughts about it, a lot of feelings, and um, I, you know, I was like really into it. I also was like, like as a person who has survived sexual violence, and also knows other people who also have survived sexual violence, thinking about like what does it mean that like this narrative is so pervasive that like that show makes rape jokes sometimes, which is like, like insane. You know, they'll be like, they'll be like, hey, dude, if you don't confess, like you're gonna really regret. Someone's gonna make you their vision, or like whatever this, and it's like. You're literally a show about how rape is bad. Like, why are, you, why are your detectives making rape jokes? I don't understand. So I feel like that show is just, like, so complicated. This is, like, this weird, like, like mainline into, like, some id in the United States about, like, bodies and sexual violence and I don't even know what else. So, um, so yeah, so I just sort of started thinking about it and I was still watching it. And then one day I just got that. I mean, it sounds like crazy. I just got the idea to, like... So for those of you who haven't read the story, it's just capsule descriptions, fictional capsule descriptions of um, using the titles from the first 12 seasons of Water or SVU. Um, so I literally just like, put those in a document and I just started writing the story. Um, and yeah, and that also was a very hard story to sell, obviously, because it's like, super long and really weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I feel like that's been... The, what's funny is you know, now, 
the show has gone through like a really radical shift for those of you who do watch it. Um, there was a show under switch like uh, six seasons ago, I think at this point, and um, the show's kind of switched around a little bit, but it remains, it's now the only, if you don't count the new like Law and Order, like, what is it, Law and Order True Crime, or True, the new one that's with the Mendes, but that, that's not Law and Order because it's not, it's fake, not fictional. Anyway, um, but, it's, but it's the only active, it's the only active Law and Order franchise that's on right now, and it's like, what does it mean that we are so obsessed with this like incredibly sexual, like violent, like, what does it mean that's the only one that's left, you know, um, and how sort of obsessed we are with it? And I feel like that story is my attempt to, like, get at this complicated sort of melange of feelings that I had about that show. So, and I love TV, so I was like, oh, I'm going to watch it. I'm a TV story. So, well, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.